Christ commanded us to preach the gospel and disciple the nations. All we do is in support of that mission statement. Join us as we strive to fight the good fight of faith together. Welcome to the Warriors Rising. Hey, this is Paul with Warriors Rising. Glad to have you in the team. Glad to have you in the fight. Uh, it is the 6th of October, 2023, and unfortunately, Tiana is not with us again this week. I wish she was because this is actually our 52nd episode. That is really exciting for us. It's been an amazing year, basically, uh, since we started this thing. A lot of craziness has obviously happened, as all of you that listen know well. I know that we have people throughout the world that are listening to us, so I just really want to take a second and just say all of our friends, obviously from the U.S., but Iran, Canada, uh, the Great Britain, Germany, Finland, South Africa, Israel, Netherlands, and Sweden, we love you guys. We hope that this encourages you and is is continues to be an encouragement. But 52 episodes, most podcasts don't make it past episode 9. And if you make it past the 21st episode I was reading, then you basically are in the top, I think it's like 2% or 1%. It's actually pretty crazy the number of podcasts that get going and just don't continue for whatever reason. Now, for us, I know that this is a ministry that God has given us at this time. And you know, when he says, hey, it's time to do something else, we'll do something else. Until that time, we're just going to continue doing this thing and just pray that we continue to be an encouragement for you. But I wish she was here so we could close out this year on together. But given that today coming as we're coming to the close of the year for us, God's been really laying this on my heart. I'm actually building a teaching through the Bible. So it's going to be a full summary of the Bible over a number of not necessarily episodes here, but just teaching so that everybody can walk away with a good grasp and ability to navigate the text, know for themselves. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. That's something God laid on my heart, had a couple confirmations of people speaking to me, actually saying I should do something like that. And my buddy, John, love that dude to death was something that he, he had actually encouraged me to do a while back. And, um, you know, so I'm I'm going to do that, but just like anything, uh, we're going to do this until God says stop, but I do pray that this is an encouragement to you guys. And with that today, God laid on my heart to do something a little unorthodox. Um, you could say, uh, I'm going to hit the news and some things that are going on that are important, uh, especially being October. So when we're looking at a couple, there's really two major events that have occurred, uh, Right now, the FBI is monitoring monitoring MAGA supporters in the run-up to 2024. We should not be surprised by this, given everything with January 6th. But the Federal Bureau of Investigation is weaponizing its resources to monitor supporters of former President Donald Trump, even creating a distinct category of domestic violent terrorists to target MAGA loyalists based on their political views. After January 6th, the FBI changed its definition of anti-government anti-authority violent extremism, known as uh, A-G-A-A-V-E, from the attempt to further ideological agendas to furtherance of political and or social agendas, which allows Trump supporters to be labeled a potential domestic terrorist threat due to their political politics alone. So just so you understand, 
in the phrasing of the basically what could be considered terrorism, what could be considered violent extremism, they changed it from ideological agendas to furtherance of political and or social agendas. What that means is that based on your political views and your social views, the FBI can target you and ultimately other organizations within our government. Now, anybody that's listening to this also has an understanding well, this doesn't just mean MAGA supporters. This doesn't mean just Trump supporters. This can extend to conservative Christians. And we do know that the FBI has been monitoring Catholic churches and uh, Catholic priests and some of their parishioners over the last couple of years. That came out last year. So this is we're moving into a very treacherous time. Obviously, as some of you guys that are following the news, and hopefully many of you are dealing with what's going on up in New York uh, without a trial, basically a judge said, hey, Trump, you need to dissolve your companies. Now, <laughs> it's 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 insane. Uh, they, they basically stated that they've been doing fraud on the value of some of their properties. There's a whole list of this. Mar-a-Lago, this one judge said, was only worth $18 million. And <laughs> somebody wrote out everything that Mar-a-Lago has on the beach, the size of it, all the amenities – in that area of Florida. And he says, if you can give me that for 18 million, I will buy that in a second. Obviously that's insane. However, this is the direction our country is moving. We are in a totalitarian state. We're quickly moving that way. We see this with some of these January 6 people that weren't even in the Capitol or even uh, going into the Capitol. They were very far away, but they were there in the groupings. And they're getting 17 years in prison, a complete violation of their rights, of their constitutional rights to a speedy trial. It's It's been when you actually get into it and what's been happening to some of these guys, it's it's insane. But this is the direction our country is going. So we shouldn't be surprised as we move towards a global system that and we see the proliferation of sin in our nation that rejects God, that we see our nation continue to go down this path. It's very interesting. Daniel Webster said, if we abide, if we continue in the Bible and obey its authority, we, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we, or our prosperity, posterity, actually, let me find this quote. I'm messing it up, but it's such a wise quote. And I think it really hits the point. If there, um, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how suddenly a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. That is such a wise statement. And we can see what has happened to our nation since we have walked away from the Bible and its authority and rejected God since the 60s. 60s was the real big time when that happened. The second big thing that's happening is almost everything is ready for the third temple, claims Israeli TV reporter about the red heifer brought to Israel last year. Uh, Israel's TV channel 12 news released an investigative report about the five red heifers that were brought to the Jewish state last September and the supposed funneling of government funds to construct the third temple. Last month, the journalist tweeted about an experiment conducted by Bar Ilan University professor Zohar Amar, who attempted to determine how many people could be ritually purified by one red heifer. 
In the study, Professor Amar said that one red heifer would provide enough ashes to purify 660 billion pur purifications. Maniv argued that the government has shifted funds from other accounts for the purpose of preparing for the purification rituals, possibly the third temple. Now, many rabbis have forbidden their followers from going up to the temple mount because they are not in the state of ritual purity. Well, just two weeks ago, near the site of biblical Shiloh, where the tabernacle was kept during the reign of the judges, a group of Jews descended from the tribe of Levi and the priestly families and acted a practice run of the purification ceremony. The event occurred at a site called Ancient Shiloh, affiliated with the Temple Institute, and contained explanations of the priestly functions, including sacrifice. The event also featured a temple banquet containing foods from the Second Temple and biblical periods. The highlight of the event was the presentation of one of the five red heifers. We are yearning for the temple, and suddenly there is a red heifer here, and we understand what that means. Something is about to happen, stated Kobe Mamo, CEO of Ancient Shiloh. According to the book of Numbers, the tabernacle and the temple were purified with the ashes of the red heifer. The Torah commands that a red heifer be without spot or blemish and never worn a yoke. Now, rabbinic law does give several additional stipulations to the requirements of the red heifer, such as being at least two years of age and having no white hairs. Now, the oldest of the red heifers brought from Texas last year is just months away from the required age to sacrifice for the purification ritual. On the Hamas-owned Al-Aqsa program, Dr. Ahmad Shihab said the heifers were proof that the Israeli government has a plan to cause a religious war in the region and the settler state religious claims regarding the Jews' right to Al-Aqsa Mosque. So this, this is not lost on the Muslims within that region. They understand that with the red heifer, it's basically the final thing that they need to be able to build the temple and begin there to follow the Mosaic law and all its sacrifices. Now, what does he say? Obviously, from their view, they want they believe Israel wants a religious war. And really, they just want their land and they have a right to that land. Now, how this all comes about, we do not fully know. We do know that there is a standing temple with Mosaic sacrifices occurring within the 70th week of Daniel. And that is what it gets cut off by the Antichrist. However, we don't know how it does come about that they actually get to the building of this thing. So the fact that this one heifer is really because it's it's basically they don't have to be three years old. They have to be in their third year. That's what we need to understand. The way they think is not, oh, they've got to be three years old, but in their third year. So as soon as you're two years of age and that next day, you're in your third year. So they do have a heifer that's getting ready to be meet all the qualifications to be sacrificed and then be be used in the ritual purification ceremony. There have been talks about a group of rabbis and a group of priests that have been in training very quietly and are ready to basically once this thing gets kicked off, they're they're ready to get moving. And it could happen pretty quickly. I was talking to some people that um, do a lot of work with Israel and the re and in the region and have a lot of relationships with the higher people within the political and religious uh, groups within Israel, they can have the temple erected pretty quickly because they've got it set basically like a Lego set. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens once these heifers reach the age where they can sacrifice them and use them for uh, purification. So exciting times, guys, exciting times in the U.S. <laughs> it could get very, very dark very, very quickly, but hey, um, 
we shouldn't be surprised, right? So what's our role? And that's what today really God kind of laid on my heart to read this and challenge you guys. So I hope that this is a challenge to you. And I hope that wherever you find yourself in this world, whether in America or Sweden or Israel or Iran or Africa, it doesn't matter. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ and you have a mission. You are on the mission field wherever you are. So I hope that this encourages you. So we'll start with this, honesty. Now, this may seem rough, possibly even judgmental. Please know that this is neither my intent or my heart, and my goal is to expose some things in love and set a base so that all things may be built up from a foundation of truth and launch us towards new levels in our walk with Christ. What I love is the saying, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the loudest is the one that got hit. Now, maybe you feel that the things I'm about to talk about don't apply to you or your church. And you know what? If if that's the case, fantastic. Great. But what I do pray is that we all self-examine to the standard of God's word and what, and that we're honest about who we are and where we are as the church. Now, understand this too. I tie myself to everything that I'm about to say, and I realize how much I have failed my king. Now, look at the church within scripture. Read the book of Acts. And we see everything going on, all that they accomplished, all that was promised by Christ, and all that we are called to in the service of our King. But where do we see these things happening today? Like me, you may feel in your spirit that something is missing within the body of Christ. Yes, there are pockets of believers who are completely sold out for Jesus. But let's be honest, guys, they're they're few and they're far between. It's something we just kind of do here and there, right? Right now, what I want you to do is I want you to stop, stop this podcast, go look up. It's a five, six minute video on YouTube and look up underground churches in China, rare video clip, dude. I cannot, I cannot get through that clip without getting emotional because there's hunger. There's such there's so much hunger and an understanding of what it truly means to be the church, to be Christian, to claim Christ to want him, to desire him, to desire to gather and worship. Now, after watching these brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't help but ask the question, what have we missed? What is holding us back from this? I would say fear and complacency personally. And let's be frank. We as Christians fear persecution. We fear losing our jobs. We feel we fear for our standing. We fear what people may think. We, we fear other Christians <laughs> because, oh, that's just that crazy guy. They just, he just wants to talk about the Bible all the time. He just wants to talk about Jesus all the time. The fact is, guys, if we walk out everything that we are called to as a believer, we are going to experience a level of persecution. This is a promise. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who want to live godly life in union with Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The gospel is an offense because in order to accept it, we have to acknowledge our sin. Christ makes it clear. Everyone who practices wickedness hates the light and does not come to the light so that his actions may not be exposed. That's John 3.20. We, as the light of the world, bring exposure to the darkness and have the ability to show the lost true reflections of themselves. Now, this is something the world doesn't want to see. So persecution is going to be expected. 
aside from the fact that you've got the spiritual warfare and they can be influenced by these external entities, which are hostile towards us. Now, allowing a fear of persecution to dictate our response means that God takes a backseat to our pursuits. One example is the contrast between how we worship Christ and how we just devour sports or any hobby. Think about it. We go to church. We do like 15 to 20 minutes of praise. And the reason I don't say worship is because there's a very stark contrast between praise and worship. Praise can be insincere. It can be mouthing the words. Worship assumes an intimate transformative connection. And it's in the Greek, it means an internal bowing down. And we sit in the pews or the seats, we sing our songs, and there might be some emotion, there might be some hand raised, but where's the passion? Where's the heart? Where's the drive? It's hard sometimes, right, to be passionate when we sing songs that are about us. The issue isn't the music, guys. The problem is our hearts. The problem is the lyrics and what they do or fail to do. If you read the lyrics of most church music today, you can't help but notice that we are the subject of the song, not the Lord. And as we sing praises, there is unfortunately little to no outpouring of ourselves to the glorification of the risen King, the God of heaven who purchased us with his own blood. But when our favorite team is playing, we'll raise our hands in the air, we'll yell, we'll scream, we'll throw our whole hearts into the game for the duration of the game. We can give it, we can give detailed team player stats or game stats, or maybe all we know all the things about fishing and hunting or, or a ho- whatever hobby. But how many of us can demonstrate using the scriptures why Jesus is the Messiah of Israel? Guys, this is this is not in balance. This is idolatry. We identify more with secular sports teams sometimes and not with Jesus. And that whole idea of music and the lyrics. I remember this one time I was at a church. We were singing. God was mentioned twice and me and I was mentioned over 80 times in the song. You know, I, I do have to say I love the old hymns. And there's a channel called Reawakened Hymns that is phenomenal. This guy's doing modern versions of the old hymns. And I love those old hymns and, and the theology and the, the glorification of God and just a, a an under just, just a desire and hunger for him that is so lacking in so much of the music today. Well, once the songs are over, what happens? We get a three-point message. It's given for about 30 minutes. It might stimulate us, but it's almost never taken out into the world, right? Our minds are tickled, but beyond that, there's no real life application except for what's in it for us. What we've done is we've diminished, we've debased scripture down to simple intellectual jargon that stimulates us so we feel good about our present situation and who we are. What we've done is we've turned God into Santa Claus and scripture into a self-help book. We have to remember that this is a war. It's a spiritual conflict. And the costs are far beyond what we can comprehend. We have to begin to acknowledge this. How can we as Christians expect to bring a message of freedom to those around us when we are still bound by the very flesh that we are supposed to die to? It's one of the biggest issues within the body is that we don't die to ourselves. And what's worse, we are very seldom taught to do so. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We act like we're not new creatures. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in the Messiah, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Where is the change in us? Where is the transformation? Where is the revelation that brings the understanding that we are nothing and Jesus through the Holy Spirit is working in and through us? But that requires time and fellowship. D.L. Moody talks about the Christians and so many of them just walk around. So many of us just walk around like we're 55-gallon buckets with a half inch of water because we have not remaining under the fount. We're leaky vessels and we have to be constantly being filled with him, which means we have to spend time with him. I read an astounding statement from Bill Johnson that I completely agree with after having been raised in the church and a Christian since I was seven. In the early church, if the Holy Spirit had been removed, 95% of its activities would have ceased. In today's church, if the Holy Spirit were removed, 95% of the activities would continue. This, this should, that should terrify us. We've become like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. It says, you examine the scriptures carefully because you suppose that in them you have eternal life. Yet They testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me to have life. We can learn and quote scripture. We can have a grand understanding of the ologies, yet our lives have not been changed. So we've got both extremes. We've become carnally minded and hold scripture low, not intellectually, but in its application, in the pursuit of our relationship with Christ. We either pick and choose what we want to accept from the scripture and shrug off what makes us uncomfortable, and we ignore the passages that we that disagree with our preconceived ideas, or we try to explain them away. Because, but what needs to happen is scripture needs to be our authority, not the our pet theology. We hold to God more as an acquaintance. Now, every now and then, you know, we'll, we'll hit that like button, we'll hit the little Facebook request to him, post a comment. But he, he's he's an afterthought. He's an afterthought rather than the very essence of our lives. In Acts 17, 6, believers held a reputation of turning the world upside down, right where they lived. Why? Because as you read the book of Acts, you see people whose lives reflected their declaration and their relationship with Christ. They were consumed by him. The unsettling part of this problem is that while most Christians believe we should be evangelizing speaking knowledgeably with believers and understanding the text in strong relationship with Christ. The vast majority of the body doesn't, and in many cases cannot carry out this task. So it's time for us to take scriptures for what it is, believe what it says, die to ourselves, carry out the great commission and disciple the nations. Family, guys, this is not to beat us up, but to state clearly where we are as the church. But the beauty of this is that once we realize where we are, we can see where we need to go. So the first question is, is God serious about what he has spoken through his word? Does it matter how we interpret scripture? Everything that we believe must be rooted and grounded in the word of God. We can't pick and choose what to believe, but must believe what the scripture actually says. We do understand there are idioms, there's metaphors, there's figures of speech. God does not have feathers, as in Psalm 91.4. But in order to establish how important it is to take the word as it is written, let's examine the Messianic prophecies and how they've been fulfilled. Now, Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15.3-4, that the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose the third day according to the scriptures. What were the scriptures in Paul's day? The Old Testament. 
We see the death of Christ by crucifixion in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the foreshadowing of the Jewish Messiah through the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And it's a beautiful picture from Genesis 22 to Genesis 24. We see a father willing to offer his son as a sacrifice. It's the first time the word love appears in scripture. It takes three days to get to that place. And then, so Isaac is technically dead for three days and then he's restored to him. And then Isaac is edited out of the record. And so Abraham and his men go down off the mountain and the son is not seen again until he's united with his bride after an unnamed servant goes out and finds her. Now in Numbers 21, the brass serpent is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion of Christ and hints at its purpose. The serpent represents sin and brass represents judgment. Why? Because it's of its ability to survive fire and the sacrifices that were on that type of metal altar. So when Israel looked at this figure, what did they see? They saw sin judged. And Jesus uses this model during his discussion with Nicodemus to prophesy about his own death in John 3, 14. The prophecies of the Old Testament relating to three days between Christ's death and resurrection are not as clearly defined. Jesus points himself to Jonah as a foreshadowing of the three days. It says, just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And one of the things that you notice as you study Jonah, he died. He says, I cried from Sheol. There are other three-day periods, we have obviously Jonah, we have Abraham, Isaac, um, we have the Tola worm of Psalm 22. Now, the weight of these passages, it is incredible. They reveal the depth, the beauty, and design of Scripture. More importantly, they demonstrate God says what he means to say. To drive this really home, let's look at Daniel 9. Now, our concern is not with the entirety of the 77s mentioned in verse 24 and 25, but the, 60, or, but the 69 sevens mentioned in verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, or 60, uh, 69 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So this prophecy states there will be 69 sevens from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah presented himself. The, the In D King James and uh, other translations, it says weeks. In the Hebrew, it means seven, and that represents a seven-year period. Why? Because Daniel's reading Jeremiah. He understands that the 70-year captivity is almost over. So he goes to confessing the sins of the nation, thinking the Messianic kingdom will be established. That's why he's confessing the sins, because he understands in order for the Messianic kingdom to be established— that Israel has to confess their sins. That's when Gabriel shows up and does a play on words. It's not 70 years and the Messianic kingdom, but 77s of years. Now, biblically, and we're indebted to Sir Robert Anderson for this, he is the one that really points out that the biblical calendar is a 360-day calendar. So Gabriel gives Daniel the exact timeline for when the Messiah would present himself. 69 seven-year periods, each consisting of 360 days, gives us 173,880 days. Nehemiah states that the decree to build the city came in the month of Nisan in Nehemiah 2.1 by Artaxerxes Langemanus. And Artaxerxes gave this decree on March 31st of 446 BC on the 7th of Nisan, the day Jesus rode in on the donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, presenting himself as the Messiah and King of Israel occurred on April 21st, 31 AD, which was the 10th of Nisan. From March 31st, 446 BC to April 21st, 31 AD is exactly 
173,880 days. Amazingly, this is what's so cool too. After Gabriel prophesies the moment in history that the Messiah would present himself, he states, then the Messiah will be killed. He will be cut off, but not for himself. And after that, his death, after his death, the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed. What, is, what does Luke record? He wrote that when Jesus came near the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the condition for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will put an embankment around you, surround you in on every side, and will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Did this happen? It did. Yes. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed both the city and the sanctuary, just as the prophet recorded. Why? Because what Jesus said, Jesus said, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus held Israel accountable to know Daniel 9 and believe what was spoken. According to John 16, 13, we even, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Do we honestly believe as Christians that we are going to be held any less accountable for what is written in scripture. I believe this also goes to how we view scripture. All the prophecies regarding the Messiah's first coming were fulfilled literally. So why would we ever think that the prophecies regarding the Messiah's second coming would not be, especially since they take up way more space in the Old Testament? So what is our call based on this? Well, I would say first we need to look at what our mission is what the commander ordered us to do. And that's the great commission. God has implanted a deep compassion for the lost within the hearts of men throughout all the ages, guys. Is it implanted in you? You know, the ramifications of an unsaved soul passing from this life into eternity is heartbreaking. The question is, why should you, why should I be concerned with evangelism? Should we evangelize? Yes. Can you just live your life and let your actions speak instead of your words? You know, oh, I, I, I share the gospel with my actions. No. Why? Because the fact is people are dying and going to hell. The fact is, one, we, per, we perform contortions to be able to ignore, but it should be absolutely break our hearts. Hell is a real place filled with real people. What I want for you to do is stop, take like two minutes and with as much imagery as possible, imagine the person you love most in this life, the person that means more to you than anything. It could be your spouse. It could be your child. It could be your friend or a parent. And after you read the next two quotes, I want you to, with as much imagery as you can make, put the people you love, that person, into this picture, enduring the suffering with as much detail as you can create in your mind. Thus it is in hell they would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall always be dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to ever be upon the rack? This word ever breaks the heart. The torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages, at the end of which the soul realize that they are no closer to the end when they first began, and they will never, ever be delivered from that place. The thought of that person who means more to you than anyone enduring that level of horror apart from God forever, millions and millions of years. I'm 39. I cannot fathom 
39 years, let alone millions. And then you get to that point and you have not even begun. What lengths would you go to save that person? What intensity would you work to keep them from walking off that cliff into an eternity apart from God? We should be taking that passion and turning it towards those that are lost, guys. I know I've talked about it before, but in my fourth combat rotation in Helmand province in Afghanistan, 27 days from getting home, my team got hit by, a, by an IED and it killed our EOD tech. I had four months, four months to witness a reg. And I did not say one word to him. I do not know if he would have accepted Christ, but the fact is I never shared Jesus with him. I never gave him what he needed. And I will never have that chance again. We are not promised one more day on this earth. So while we are alive, allow my story to encourage you to take every opportunity to share Christ because once this life is over, whether yours or theirs, everything is eternally set. There are no more chances. Ray Comfort, he is an evangelist and he got the following letter from an atheist and it's convicting. This convicted me so much. When I read it the first time, you're really convinced that you've got all the answers. You really got yourself tricked into believing that you're 100% right. Well, let me just tell you one thing. Do you consider yourself to be compassionate for other humans? If you're right as you say you are and you believe that, then how can you sleep at night? When you speak with me, you're speaking with someone you believe is walking directly into eternal damnation, into an endless onslaught of horrendous pain, which your loving God created, yet you stand by and do nothing. If you believe one bit, that thousands every day were falling into an eternal, unchangeable fate. You should be running the streets mad with rage at their blindness. That's equivalent to standing on a street corner and watching every person that passes you walk blindly directly into the path of a bus and die. Yet you stand idly by and do nothing. You're just twiddling your thumbs, happy in the knowledge that one day that walk signal will shine your way across the road. Think about it. Imagine the horrors hell must have in store if the Bible is true. You're just going to allow that to happen and not care about saving anybody but yourself? If you're right, then you're an uncaring, unemotional, purely selfish expletive that has no right to talk about love and caring. And he is dead right. The reality that people are going to hell should kindle an unquenchable fervency in us to share Christ. What God has done for us should be an even greater driving force. Why? Because we know what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection but I don't think we think about the cost and I don't think we can fully comprehend it. First, Jesus became a man, not for just his time on the earth. Jesus became a man for all eternity. He is still a man today. Three separate times after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers, but they didn't recognize him. We see this on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, breakfast on the shore in John 21, and Mary Magdalene at the tomb in John 20. These were people who walked with Christ for years but they didn't recognize him. Why? My personal opinion, I believe he was unrecognizable. In Isaiah 52 and 53, the prophet states, about talking about the death of the Messiah, it says, just as many as were astonished at you, so he was marred in his appearance more than any human and his form beyond that of human semblance. What this means is that Jesus was so physically destroyed, he no longer appeared human. The prophet Isaiah also wrote, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This passage tells us that Jesus' beard was ripped out as part of his torture. And we're, so most likely, once 
these people saw a beard, they saw scar tissue. And this is why they don't recognize him. And it's possibly maybe the face that we look at when we're joined with him. In Revelation 5, a man is sought to open the scroll to take it. And John describes the man as a lamb that looked like he had been slaughtered in Revelation 5, 6. So from Jesus' interaction with his followers and John's description in Revelation, we can kind of assume that maybe he still bears the marks of his torture. Now, as terrible as this is, the greatest torment our king endured on our behalf was the abandonment and the wrath of the father. That is what he endured for you and for me and everyone else who walked this earth. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. So he was crushed. When we look at all Jesus bore on our behalf and the vast, vastness of that love, it's easily seen. It really is. And I don't want to take anything from him. But one thing that I think we often miss when we discuss our redemption is the love of the father. You know, I remember when my wife first got pregnant and the joy and the expectation, it was amazing. And I remember the first time I heard that child's heartbeat flood the room and I saw that little body on the screen and any parent that's gone through this understands that there's an instant love for that child. And I, I mean, I was overwhelmed. I was so stoked. I never, I always wanted to be a dad, but I also remember just the pain and the heartache that I cannot describe. And they said, Hey, we don't know when, but you're going to lose the baby. And then searching for that heartbeat, searching for that heartbeat, just waiting, waiting, waiting for it to come across the speaker. That devastated me. And I would have gone to any length to give up my own life even to be able to save that baby. God in heaven watched as they tortured, as they mocked, spat on, destroyed, and crucified his son. Imagine the pain of the father as he watched all this occur. The father not only withheld intervention, but then poured his wrath out on his son. How? Through separation. As a father, I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine pouring my wrath out on my daughter, on crushing her. It would destroy me. Yet the father did this in order to redeem us. I don't think we have the capacity to comprehend that depth of love. And after all these things took place, and after Christ came back to life, and he purchased us, he paid for our redemption and the redemption of the universe. What does he do? He gives us the commission to go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to everyone. This is not for the gifted evangelist alone, guys, but for the entire body of Christ. The word for proclaim or preach in the Greek is kariso. It means to enunciate after the manner of a herald. And if we remember from even a light study of history, a herald was one who would take a message from the kings or nobles and proclaim it to the masses. This is the intensity conveyed in the command. If you claim Christ, this is your calling as much as it is mine. And as we walk through life, we are to continuously share not only the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also the cost of their rejection of his free gift. Think of everything our king did for us through love that held nothing back but instead gave everything. So then why do we hold back anything from him? Why do we hold back? Why do we hold back dying to ourselves, dying to the world, and hold him back from a dying world? What's going to happen before we, when we stand before our king to give an account for our lives? Will we look at him and say, God, I really tried to live the life you called me to by not sinning. I went to church. I tithed. It was a pretty comfortable life. I treated people with kindness. What if he looks at you and says, great, 
good life. Did you do what I told you to do? Did you tell people about me? Did you share the gospel? Did you warn them about the path they were walking? What's the last command I gave you while I was with you? Now, let me take some stress off you with this because I do know that it can be stressful. But the best part about evangelism is that the pressure is not on us to convert people. We are not required, nor should we try to force a conversion. We try to persuade, but we don't force. Paul wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God kept everything growing. He provided the increase. So neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who keeps everything growing is the one who matters. Our job is to sow seed and water and sow seed and water and try to persuade. First Corinthians, that's first Corinthians three. So it's not up to us to force the conversion, but we've still got to plant that seed. So with that being our commission, what about the scriptures? We've talked about that a lot. How much should we pursue them as Christians? You know, in any environment, and we all know this, we need food for the energy to carry out our tasks. In the military, we have the MRE. Everybody knows this, the MRE, the meal ready to eat. And when you put that heater on, you put it on a rock or something. It actually says that on the package. Once you throw the water in the heater, put it on a rock or something. Now, what's the purpose of the MRE? Pump calories into the soldier so that he has the energy to fight, period, to continue to function in the same way scripture is spiritual food. Paul refers to the, or I believe it's Peter, refers to the milk and the meat of the word in his letters. So does Paul. When responding to the devil's temptations, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3 by saying, we are not sustained by food alone, but that we are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Do we go get a handout from a person for our natural food once a week? Oh, absolutely not. Then why do we submit ourselves to the idea that our spiritual food has to be handed to us once a week? And that's the only time we really consume it. We should be studying, meditating, memorizing scripture, not just giving God his five minutes by doing a quick devotional with one verse and then a lot of text just about everyday life every once in a while and calling it good. We need to spend time learning what God has spoken to us. I got this buddy, Dave, and he said, before I just read the Bible, because it's something that I was supposed to do, but it made sense. And I, I really wanted to read it when I realized that was God's half of the conversation. That made so much sense to me. You know, Jeremiah, the prophet says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became a joy to me and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, Lord God of the armies. The word for eat in the Hebrew means to eat or devour. As Jeremiah feasted on God's word, it was a joy, a gladness, an exultation and rejoicing of the inner man. It can be the same for us. You know, guys, being in God's word is vital to the believer in order to produce fruit. David, through, through the Holy Spirit, through David said, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. His leaf will not wither and whatever he does will prosper. This is an incredible promise, but it's conditional. The blessed man not only lives righteously, but he delights in and meditates on the scriptures. In verse three, we see what happens as a result when we carry this out. There's a blessing. There's happiness. There's being, there's prosperous. 
Just as in Psalm 1, the Lord makes a similar promise to Joshua. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will achieve success. Both day and night, they were to meditate on God's word in order to follow and carry out what was written. Then their way would be prosperous. Then they would be happy. They'd be blessed. In ancient Israel, the king was required to write out his own copy of the law. In Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, Moses wrote, when he occupies his royal throne, he must make a copy of the law for himself from a scroll used by the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him for the rest of his life so he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, so that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, and observe all the words of this law and these statutes in order to fulfill them. He is not to exalt himself over his relatives, nor turn aside from the commandment, neither to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may reign long in Israel. So every day, the king would read the law to learn to fear the Lord. Reading it helped to keep the king from pride. Why? Because God's law sheds light on our sin. Just look at Romans 7. It's very hard to become prideful when we realize how far off the mark we are. Continually, continually reading the law kept the king from turning away from God's commandments. So it kept him on that path. And just as this is applied to the king of ancient Israel, it applies to us. If we are in Christ, we are kings and priests. We see this in Revelation 1, 6 and 5, 10. We need to meditate on the scriptures every day in order not to turn away. This is because of how Jesus describes the path that we as Christians walk in this world. In Matthew 7, it says, For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So imagine walking through the woods on a really dark night. Anybody that's in the military had to do land navigation at night understands this. Sometimes you've got a really tiny path, you're you're walking, and you've barely got some light. It's small, it's hard to see, and we would use a light source to illuminate our way so that we could stay on that path. In the same way, the world we live in is dark, and there are a lot of opportunities to get off course. God gave us the light source to ensure we are able to stay on that path. The psalmist writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path in Psalm 119, 105. And for this reason, it is mission critical to keep the light before us. And not only before us, but we also want to maintain the light within us. Memorizing scripture really does help with this. David hid God's word in his heart so that he would not sin against the Lord, Psalm 119, 11. And God promises that he will provide an escape when temptation arises. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except something common to man, and God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. What's the way of escape? How do we resist the devil and cause him to flee? Psalm 118.11, it's our guide. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. And Jesus gave an example of this in his action during his temptation by responding to everything Satan offered with scripture in Matthew 4. Now, an important point has to be made here. Part of Satan's strategy when tempting Jesus was to use the scriptures. He had taken pieces of scripture and applied them out of context apart from the rest of God's word. Now, although that type of application could sound logical, this kind of application, why? Because it's out of context. So it's like me throwing a verse out and then, hey, it supports my point. Here's a verse. So it sounds logical. It sounds right. But this application is not only incorrect, it's sin, especially when judged against the whole counsel of God. 
Satan's strategy is no different today. Our protection against such tactics and false teachings is to remember two truths. First, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed, which removes justification for one verse theology. Second, Paul gave a prophetic warning in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but having wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own lusts, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul encouraged Timothy to study and accurately handle the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. We must accurately handle God's word. We have to steer clear of eisegesis, which is rampant in our churches, rampant in our social media. And that means reading our ideas into the text, to read it into the text. But we need to be exegetical. That's the process of studying in which all the ideas come out of the text. That is how we learn. That's how we profit, properly study and know. And it's our guard against error and temptation is the totality of God's word. And that's why we have to be Bereans. Paul had gone from Thessalonica to Berea. He presented them the gospel. They took and took, they took Paul's message of the gospel and tested it against the scripture. And they were commended in Acts 17. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching for rebuke, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. We are to use the scriptures to teach for a proof. Reproof is the process by which something is proven or tested. So basically it's saying, hey, this isn't right. It's not matching the test. Everything should be tested with the scriptures, teachings, actions, attitudes, literally everything. Correction is an event that restores something or someone to an upright or correct state. Training in righteousness means simply that the scripture is our guide on how we should live. The end state of what the apostle Paul is talking about here is that the believer come to maturity, bears abundant fruit for the purposes of God. And this is a picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We're not called to produce fruit. We're called to bear fruit. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is not uncommon to hear someone say, ah, know the truth, truth will set you free. But unfortunately, that is often ignored in this path. What is often ignored in this passage is the requirement to continue in his word in order to know the truth. The Greek word for continue means to remain, abide. We are to remain and abide in the word of God. You know, many of us in church seek to hear God speaking. And I, I don't think that that's wrong. But sometimes in that seeking to hear God, we are absorbed enough in the reading of scripture and we've forgotten that God has already spoken to us through his word. So let this be a challenge to you to devour the word of God and love it and find joy in it. Like our lives depend on it. Worship also needs to be a major part of our lives as Christians. And we look at David and David's heart of worship was so intense that he danced with all his might before the Lord, then basically told Michael, yeah, uh, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> For this and many other reasons, David is called a man after God's own heart. And in the same way that scripture should be a daily part of our lives, worship needs to be too. Worship is vital to the believer's relationship with the Lord. And I, I can attest to this, that it completely changed my prayer life and brought me into such a deeper relationship with Christ when I really studied and understood worship. 
and what it truly is. There is a difference between true worship and just praise. We talk about worship. We encourage others to worship and we sing worship music, right? But sometimes <laughs> don't we don't actually step into it. We don't allow him to cleanse our hearts, change our lives. We don't internally prostrate ourselves. I love the quote, why did Christ come? Why was he conceived? Why was he born? Why was he crucified? Why did he rise again? Why is he now at the right hand of the father? He did all these things so that he might make worshipers from rebels, that he might restore to us again to a place of worship we knew when we were first created. Worship is not praise, but an act of total surrender to the Lord. So the question has to follow. If total surrender is the cost, how many of us know how to or really desire to worship? You know, each person of the Trinity, as you study, it's so interesting. It's involved in the process of worship. To be spiritually cleansed requires reconciliation to God through Christ, Romans 5, 9 through 11, and salvation, Romans 10, 9 through 10. If a believer has sinned, purification comes by confessing sin to the Lord, 1 John 1, 9. And only after the believer is fully purified can they enter a place of worship. God can only be worshiped in spirit, according to John 4, 23 through 24. And by the spirit, the believer worships, Philippians 3, 3. This requires the indwelling of the Holy Spirit sent from the Father, in John 14, 16. You know, Nancy Missler, she describes worship as a uniting or becoming one of two separate spirits. Worship means binding ourselves or joining ourselves to the object of our love. God is a spirit and only that which is spirit can abide in his presence. And she wrote a book called Private Worship Keys to Joy. And I would highly recommend everybody get that book. That is a phenomenal book on worship. And it just helps so much with the intimacy. The father is not only the supplier of the spirit, but he's also the object of the worship. Paul made the point that the believer is the same as Solomon's temple, that we house God's presence in 1 Corinthians 3.16. And the psalmist said that it requires clean hands and heart to stand in the holy place. In Psalm 24, God is the same today as he was during the days of Solomon, according to Hebrews 13, and is consistent. He's unchanging in James 1.17. So while the ceremony and ritual of the law is now fulfilled in Christ, according to Matthew 5.17, the requirements of worship still remain the same. Solomon's temple is unique in that it housed the presence of God. We see this in 2 Chronicles 5, 13-14. And it was the only temple which held the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a requirement for the presence of the Lord to manifest his glory. In heaven, God dwells between the cherubim, Isaiah 37, 16. And it was between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant where God promised Moses that he would meet his people. The people could praise the Lord at any time, but a specific process had to be had to take place for them to be able to worship. The people would enter from the outer court singing and praising the Lord. The priests then entered the inner court to wash their hands and feet. We see this in Exodus 30, 18 through 19. So then the priest sacrificed an animal on the brazen altar in order to remove the sin of the people, to cover the sin, because it was never fully removed before Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about. After the sacrifice, the priests immersed themselves in the molten sea, took coals from the brazen altar into the holy place, changed clothes, took incense, and dashed it over the golden incense altar. And as they came near the altar, the priests removed their shoes, bowed down, and worshiped the Lord. So what does this look like for us today? Well, just like in ancient Israel, there is an order. Today, we have to follow this example in the spirit to enter God's presence and truly worship him. 
It's not an external ritual, but a bowing down and surrendering of ourselves internally. We are to enter his courts with praise and thanksgiving. We see this in Psalm 104, 100, 100 verse 4. And just like the priest in the outer court, we praise him by reading the Psalms. We praise him for who he is, what he's done. Thank him for our salvation, for his love, for his mercies, for his continual grace, for his forgiveness, for the blessings of this life, his amazing creation that we get to look at every day. I go out every morning when the stars are out and I just I just stand in awe of God's creation. After the praise, the priests entered the inner court and carried out the ritual cleansing. In like manner, before we can enter the holy place, we have to recognize and confess our sins. We cannot walk into his presence with unconfessed sin. We have to ask the Lord to reveal sin, confess it, repent, forgive anyone we have not forgiven, and surrender those things to the Lord that he's shown us. And once sin and self are really put off, we can then be received into God's presence. Paul, the psalmist writes, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. At this moment, our spirits are united. And as we put on his nature, so we can now boldly go before the throne of the holy place. So imagine carrying the coals of a surrendered life from the brazen altar into the holy place in an incense altar where God has promised to meet with us. Now we can truly worship him with clean hands and a clean heart. And this is when we bow down, offering our love, adoration, and surrendered life to him. And in this moment, what do we do? We allow the Lord to lead. We don't ask for anything. We simply adore him, make him the focus. Imagine the change we would see in the body of Christ if we were to take hold of what true worship is and put it into practice collectively. What would our church look like if an entire congregation came prepared to worship? And more importantly, what would your life and your relationship with the Lord look like? When we look at all of this, it comes to dying to self. We have to kill the man that is inside us to carry all this out. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but the Christ that lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything here that I've spoken about ultimately ultimately involves sanctification. It's the process of becoming holy and Christ-like. It involves dying to self, allowing Christ to take over and to live through us. And this bleeds over into every area of our life, from our relationship with the Lord to our relationship with others. Paul called us to this sanctification when he says, I therefore urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God, for this is the reasonable way for you to worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but continuously be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may be able to determine what God's will is, what is proper, pleasing, and perfect. Romans 12, one through two. We have an active role in offering every part of our lives to the Lord for his use. And we are commanded not to be conformed to this world, but transformed. Dying to ourselves is the requirement whether you like it or not. Now, let me give you Now, let me give you a warning. If you're going to pursue Christ, die to yourself and be all that he desires, it costs you. It is going to cost you. And Jesus gave us this warning when he stated the requirements of discipleship to his followers. In Luke 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
It's not possibly won't. He cannot be. And whoever does not carry his own cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000? Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace, so that none of you can be my disciple. And who does not give up all his own possessions? Jesus is not telling us to hate people. That would be a contradiction, obviously. What he's saying here is our love for him should be so great. Everything in comparison looks like hate. You unlove them. He's also not calling us to give up everything we own. The Greek word for give up means to withdraw from, renounce, forsake. Jesus is saying we must relinquish any hold that material possessions have on our lives. It could be our house, our cars, our families. We need to count the cost of discipleship because it's going to cost us, especially given the way the world is going. It's possibly going to cost us quite, quite a lot more in the future for those of us in America. Often, it's going to cost us in ways we cannot imagine. You know, in December 3rd, 2013, I asked God, I said, I want an opportunity to minister to people with cancer in their families. My wife at the same time, and I didn't know it was saying in her prayer journal saying, God, use me, give me new testimonies. January 15th, 2014, she walked herself down to the emergency room. She was working night shift in the NICU. And she, four hours later, she was diagnosed with leukemia. That was a month at UNC Chapel Hill, and then seven months at MD Anderson for bone marrow transplant. We were able to minister to people at that time. We saw people, we did see a couple of people come to Christ. We saw some people healed that we prayed for. It was actually really, really cool. God answered our prayer to be used. And it was in a way, but it was in a way that we never expected. And the whole process was about eight months from our diagnosis to getting home from MD Anderson. But it cost us. That next three years of her recovery process was incredibly difficult. One, we didn't know if she was going to survive. Two, she couldn't be in the sun because of grass versus hose disease. Lost the ability to have more kids. So we've got our daughter and it's amazing. It's wonderful. I wanted to be a dad. She wanted to have a large family. I wanted to have a large family. That was the cost. There were spiritual and emotional consequences and physical consequences we paid. And it was so often beyond what we felt we could handle, but God was faithful. We asked God to use us and he honored our prayers, but it cost us. Same thing happened when I was retiring. I said, finally said, God, if you want me to stay in the military, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I'll do ministry here. But if you want me, I'm ready, but you got to do it because I'm locked into this contract. Three weeks later, I was absolutely frying from the seizures. I was having so many focal seizures. My wife was literally having to do my carry out my ADLs. It was so difficult. But God was faithful. He brought us through. And it was hard on all those counts. There was so much pain, so much sorrow. But there was joy at times. There was peace. But man, what an honor to be used by God, to be counted worthy to endure these things because it allowed us to be a light to those in such dark places and going through their own battles. 
when we ask God to use us or tell him we want to draw closer, he will begin to remove things. He will put you in situations that will force you to confront the things that become come between you and him. And a lot of times the things removed are the things that we are most comfortable with. And he removes them and he removes that comfort because that comfort breeds complacency, which breeds apathy, which breeds stagnation. A good soldier knows that in combat, the fastest way to get somebody hurt or killed is to sink into complacency. It is painful. It is so painful when the Lord prunes and cuts away so that we can go stronger in him. Now, looking back, Kelsey and I, obviously we recognize God was pruning us for his purposes. And we haven't seen the end of this wisdom and allowing these the events to happen in our life. It continues. We're still growing. If you eagerly seek the Lord, he's going to work in you. When the process is painful, and it will be, I, I'm telling you guys, do not stop. Do not draw back. Dive headlong towards Christ, even and especially if you are to the point where you feel God has completely removed his presence from you. When he has removed his presence from you, you don't feel him. Can you still sit and worship? This is where faith matters most. It's easy to say we have faith in the peaks, in the high points where the views are clear and we see the big picture and everything's going great. But the valleys are where we're tested and where we're grown. You have to believe that God is a good father and he only wants the best for you and desires to see you walk out his calling to the fullest. One of the best practices we can undertake in this, guys, in dying to ourselves is fasting and prayer. This is a vital subject and it significantly aids us in our walk with the Lord, but unfortunately it's neglected by the church. A true fast, while fast of giving up television, social media, video games, whatever it is, right? It's, it is good because then you're devoting that time to the Lord, but true, a true fast is depriving the body of food. You know, I know a lot of believers and I did this for a while that I've struggled with things, but <laughs> what's interesting is that when you engage in the discipline of fasting and praying, especially for elongated periods, it's a lot easier to overcome these things. Why? Because when you deprive the body of food, your body turns its attention to the fact that it just wants to survive. Everything takes a backseat. And it's amazing how calm things can get. But it's also amazing how much, especially like day, like two, three, four, how much you can throw yourself into those prayers. It's incredible. This fasting wasn't just for first century Judy, for the Jews and for the early church. It's for the church today. Jesus says in Matthew 9, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. So there's an expectation. We fast to die to ourselves, to strengthen the spiritual man by weakening the physical. Now, one thing, and I would definitely look up how to actually carry out a fast. One thing that I would definitely recommend is get some Celtic salt. And every time you drink some water, drink it with some Celtic salt. So that way you've got the electrolytes going in. But it's amazing what fasting can do for your walk with Christ. Even if it's skipping breakfast every day, just skip breakfast and spend that time in prayer. It, it'll change your life, I'm telling you. But one thing I do want to warn you about, and this is something I have seen multiple times in my life with fasts, Satan doesn't tempt you necessarily during the fast. He might for eating, but I have always found that the big temptation and battle comes after the fast. 
Satan's an opportunist, guys. We can't forget that. He will attempt to nullify everything that has been accomplished during that time of fasting and prayer. So be prepared for the attacks that will come when you engage in total surrender to Christ. You know, guys, we, we've covered a lot of really heavy topics in this, but we haven't really looked at yet what is there to gain or lose based on what we've covered. What lies ahead for us? How many of us and how many believers do we know that actually know and believe we're going to be judged? That These are serious questions. Why? Because the outcome of everything that we've discussed, as well as how we decide to answer these challenges, is eternal. In multiple letters, Paul wrote about the judgment that we as believers are going to endure. In Romans 14, he says, but as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Then there's 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. What we notice in these passages and others like it is that our actions, our fruit are going to be judged, not our salvation, right? Paul was never concerned about his salvation. He was concerned about his inheritance. Paul describes the judgment that we as believers are going to face in detail in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each person must be careful how he builds on it. For no other, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. Now, earlier in this chapter, Paul describes those that sow in water is nothing. We covered that. But each one receives a reward based on what they allowed the Holy Spirit to do through them. So imagine a portion of elements before us. Some are combustible. Some are non-combustible. Each portion consists of the things that we've done for the king and for ourselves in our flesh or in our spirit. And every believer's heap is going to be put, have fire put to it. How much of what you have in your individual pile is going to burn? Whatever doesn't, that's your inheritance. Some people are going to have an amazing inheritance. They've stored up that treasure in heaven. Others are going to have nothing. My mom always said something, <laughs> you made it, but you got smoke on your clothes. What, what I fear is that so many of us believers are going to be disappointed in eternity and in the kingdom because we've always been taught that we are equal, that we will all reign with Christ as heirs. But that's not what the text says. Paul says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If in fact, we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Romans 8, 16 through 17. That word if makes it conditional. Sharing in Christ's sufferings can mean persecution, trials, obedience. There's endless possibilities, but that if still makes it conditional. They had a Christian brother in Africa. I think about a lot 
he was at a church in North Carolina and I heard him speak about his father's Christian orphanage in, Christian orphanage in Africa. And once the children age out, basically they have to leave the orphanage. And a lot of them, what they do is they just move to a nearby city and they live their lives incredibly poor. So what this dude did is he moved from his father's orphanage to a one bedroom apartment to the city to help take care of the guys that aged out and had outgrown the orphanage. He lives, this guy lives in this one bedroom apartment with his wife, children, and eight previous orphans who have since married and their kids. So you're talking nine families, one apartment. How are we going to stand before Christ and answer for the fact that we have spent hundreds, thousands, and in many times, millions of dollars on buildings, light shows, sound systems, and whatever else so that we can meet once a week and for what we have come to understand is church, but we didn't help our brothers and sisters in these situations, or we just gave them a little bit of money. Francis Chan, he he makes a really powerful point. He said, uh, and I would highly recommend anybody listening, go watch this sermon. It's called, if Jesus was your pastor, you probably wouldn't go to his church. He said, we had this huge building project, you know, some multi, multi, multi-million dollar building project this little village we were going to build. I just looked at it and I went, I I can't do that. I, I don't think that's how Jesus would have done it. I think he would have said, just, just meet me at the park. You know? And I said, why don't we just plant a bunch of grass and we'll meet outside. And people were like, well, what if it rains? I'm like, well, we'll probably get wet, but we're in Southern California. Come on. And I go, man, haven't you heard of the Green Bay Packers? People will sit in a storm for four hours and pay money to do it. They'll do that. And we won't sit in Southern California weather for an hour and a half to worship God. Don't get me wrong, guys. The issue isn't that we have buildings, lights, and sound systems. The issue is that our brothers and sisters are in need under persecution around the world. They're often forgotten and ignored, and we have the funds to help them. The facility we meet in does not matter. Only that we come together in the name of Christ. The fact of the matter is, guys, we are all subject and going to meet the ultimate, be part of the ultimate statistic. 10 out of 10 of us are going to die. Are you justified? Are you saved by belief in Christ? Great. What have you done with it? When the Lord comes again, He calls us home. There's no more chances. Everything is set. So let me ask you the questions that this whole thing has led up to. Is Jesus really all you want? Have you counted the cost? If not, why? And if not now, when? Let me end with probably one of the most powerful confessions of faith that I have ever read. It's attributed to a martyred African pastor. And these words were found on his desk after his death. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. My die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My presence makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, 
worldly talking, cheap giving and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, and my mission clear. And man, I'll tell you what, when you really start on this road, you will be amazed at that. You will understand that statement, my companions few. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. So I hope today encourages you. I hope that this ignites a fire in you to ask, are you willing? Are you ready? And let's go do this thing. If you have questions, if you have prayer requests, please reach out to me, Paul, at thewarriorsrising.com. Please share to this, this podcast, like, subscribe it. I love you guys. Go out, be the church, preach the gospel, disciple the nations. This is Paul with Warriors Rising, out.